and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm your host, one of them, Katie Halper. And I'm uh, the other one, Matt Taibbi. We've got a great show for you today, and, and you'll see why, because uh, we're going to be talking to another Matt uh, named uh, Matt Chrisman. So. Right. This is the premiere episode. It's actually the, it's actually the second episode of Between Two Between Mats. Between Two but- Mats. But, uh, but it's the first time we recognize it as right. such. Right, yes. We see it. We're yeah. holding space for it. So I guess we, let's just jump right into uh, yeah. the four food groups. Um, let's do it. Yeah, we got a lot but, of great stuff because Biden is the guy. So obviously, always very interesting. He a man. He a man, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so Democrats suck, Republicans suck. Isn't yeah. that terrible? Isn't that weird? Katie, you're, you're up. Democrats yeah, suck. so for Democrats suck, I thought we could talk about reading from The Intercept. Biden, Defense Secretary nominee Lloyd Austin comes under fire, a funny pun, for industry connections. So, uh, yeah, Biden announced he's going to nominate retired four-star General, Floyd, uh, General Lloyd Austin III, once the top commander of U.S. forces in the Middle East, and now a member of the board of directors at, say it with me now, Raytheon. Raytheon. The company has been in the spotlight during the Trump administration in part because it supplies air-to-ground munitions for Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen, and Austin's role with Raytheon could be central to his confirmation fight. Well, let's certainly hope. And, you know, just continuing, because there's a lot of really good information in this article, he oversaw U.S. operations in the Middle East until March 2016. A year after the Saudi-led intervention began, he retired from the military the next month and later joined the board of United Technologies, a defense contractor that merged with Raytheon earlier this year. In 2019, Raytheon proceeded with an $8 billion arms sale to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, which included air-to-ground munitions. Gee, that all sounds like a felicitous chain of events, doesn't it? I I mean, yeah, I I want this guy. I don't even want him to be. Military man goes to small company, which is then acquired by bigger company, which then sells billion dollar, uh, gets billion dollar contract from the Pentagon. I wonder how all of that ties together. But uh, but at least it's for a good cause. Right. It's. You know, because Saudi Arabia those, with Yemen is that's well, just a those, great. Those Yemeni kids, if you let them get over three feet they tall, they can fat. cause all kinds of problems. Yeah, yeah and if they have a full diet, Yemeni kids t- tend to get very chubby. <laughs> they, it's called the Yemeni chub. They bite your chub. knees. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, they bite your knees? Why? <laughs> well, I mean, because they're they're small. That's what they you know you got you got to stop them before they get taller. Oh, you mean they stop at the knee? They can't. You don't want them to bite your thigh or worse. Right. Is that what you're right. saying? I see. Yeah. On their way up, they could bite a lot of bad things. That's why I you see, gotta right. you gotta drop those Raytheon missiles on them. Yes. Before yes. they get over like three feet tall. So yeah. after congressional Democrats blocked the sale on human rights grounds, the Trump administration helped force the sale through by declaring a state of emergency. Um, so that's great. I guess other people, other contenders, Biden had like a resume pool, I guess, of other people with um, very uh, flagrant and blatant uh, conflicts of interest. So you had Michelle Flournoy, who is the former undersecretary of defense for policy, and she joined the board of Booz Allen Hamilton in 2018. I, I love how their response to the criticism of, of a Booz Allen Hamilton nominee is to get a Raytheon board member. Yeah, you're right. Yes. Well, and then they are also considering um, former Homeland Security uh, Secretary under Obama, Jay Johnson, who sits on the board of Lockheed Martin. So they're like, none of this booze Hamilton, uh, booze Alex, what is it? Booze Allen Hamilton. Hamilton. We're not going to name someone from booze Allen Hamilton. That would be ridiculous. And, And Lockheed Martin would be obscene. We are bringing you someone from Raytheon. Right. But he's he's African-American and I look forward to 
people like, you know, New York Times journalist uh, Jonathan Martin. Uh, he's going to, I'm sure, chide anyone who criticizes him like he did, like he did with Cedric Richmond, for instance. Yeah. Um, also, Matt, you, you know more about this than I do, but like, this is a precedent, right? You, you're supposed to wait a couple, like the revolving door, the revolving military industrial complex is supposed to be a little more, like, it's supposed to revolve more slowly than it is oh. in this case. So um, Austin is slated to face a rocky confirmation process, not only due to his business ties, but also because his nomination already was criticized as a violation of civil military relations. By law, the Secretary of Defense position is a civilian position and not supposed to be held by recently retired officers. The rule is meant to emphasize civilian control over the military, and Austin has not yet undergone a legally required seven-year cooling-off period. Uh. Austin's confirmation will require Congress to waive that requirement, just as they did with Trump's first defense secretary, retired General Mattis. So this is a great example, by the way, of the Democrats doing exactly what the Republicans did, not just the Republicans did, but this unprecedented existential threat named Donald Trump. Turns out Biden does the same thing. Well, look, in fairness, this is something that the Democrats have been doing since time immemorial, which is you know, raising the military budget and putting defense contractors in, right. in but, right. but not, of authority. Right, but isn't the whole thing about Trump is that he violates norms and etiquette and he violated those with Mattis and they were upset about that. And now they're doing with this guy. Like, again, they could find a terrible person who had that seven-year cooling-off period, probably. Y- yes, that's that's true. That That is true. But, you know, the I remember when uh, Barack Obama came into office and he promised that he wasn't going to have any registered lobbyists in his in his government. And then within five minutes, he had a, a guy named Mark Patterson named as uh, deputy secretary of the Treasury. And he, he was a Goldman lobbyist. So, you know, it's we, we might as well just sort of end the pretense that the Pentagon is anything but a way to funnel money to basically five companies. Right. Um, while killing no. a lot of people also. Well, while killing a lot of people. Well, clearly, but but I think the problem is that the the illusion that the Pentagon exists to defend the country gets in the way of the primary mission of delivering profits to these companies. Right. So we might as well just start justifying things like invasions of various countries by saying, you know, we, we haven't gotten enough money for General Dynamics this year or for Northrop Grumman or you know, Lockheed Martin or whatever it is. So we need, we need to use this weapon system because we've been in the desert too long. We need to invade a country with mountains, you know, change it up, switch it up a little bit, change it up, have some submarine battles. Right. Right. Truly intersectional warfare. Intersectional in a, in a geographic uh, sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I I applaud this move. Yeah. Anything else on that? Um, Well, there's also the the fact that like um, Marsha Fudge, who is an African-American congresswoman from Ohio, whose policy expertise is in agriculture, and she wanted to be Secretary of Agriculture. And last month she told Politico, we are going to have to stop looking at only certain agencies as those that people like me fit in. You know, it's always, we want to put a black person (laughs) in labor or HUD. And guess where Biden named Fudge? Guess which department he named Is she gonna do it? Unclear. Yes, I think so. And then we'll talk about that because Nina Turner, I think, is going to run for a seat. But yeah, guess where he names her? HUD. HUD, right. Nice. He's probably like, urban? Urban? 
You'll love it. What do we got for Urban? Yeah, Yeah. you love it. It's in its name. Yeah. Also, um, but but you know who's going to agriculture is Tom Vilsack, and you know what he's famous for. I I always think of that as like never mind. Go ahead. Yeah. What vile sack or ball sack of balls? Oh, ball sack. Yeah. 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 I don't know why I didn't figure that one out. Vil sack of balls, Katie. What the hell's wrong with you? Obviously, ball (laughs) sack. Yeah. uh, Tom uh, Vilsack, who um, is going to be, he's naming him to agriculture and he's known for, remember this little uh, episode where he fired Shirley Sherrod after Andrew Bright- Breitbart like did a video about her. Do you remember that? Oh, I don't remember that. Under Obama. Yeah, it was like right away. Black woman got rid of her real quick. It was a but I, what I remember about Tom, Tom Vilsack is that uh, approximately 190% of all pundits um, have I identified him as a dark horse to win the presidency at some oh, point? Okay. Not Do you remember a... those days? No, I don't think so. There were like nine straight election cycles where where people were writing columns, but like, okay, well, the the the, the supposed front runners are Dukakis and Songus and or, or you know whoever. a lot of Greeks, but, huh? Right, but watch out for Tom Vilsack. There were, that that was like a a big the, trope in political journalism for a, for a while. Interesting, yeah. I yeah. thought you were going to say um, He's Iowa, you know, as everybody thought. Former governor. And I thought you were going to say that people keep saying um, ball sack. I thought that ball was sack. what you were going to say, that that, that uh, pundits kept saying that by accident. But sadly, no. That, in that case, it would be a funnier story. You know, yeah. Watch, watch out for ball sack. Yeah. Ball sack coming to, coming to a race near you. <laughs> Could ball sack win? Could ball, be a ball sack, sack coming victory. up from behind. <laughs> Coming up from behind, yeah, yeah, rearing, rearing to the, rearing to the front. Be careful. Look, I know you're not expecting it, but I think a ball sack could really make it. I think a ball sack could. Ball sack drops into the race. Yeah, ball sack drops into the race. Ball sack could really explode as a candidate. (laughs) So that's great. So he's he's made a progressive choice to HUD. So that's good. So those are my dem suck. And what about you, Matt? Anything for uh, Republican suck? Those are good, you know. So my Republican suck is is less about like something that they did wrong than than uh, I just I just want to um, chortle in amusement at what's happening to the, to the Republican Party. So uh, basically, because the entire uh, Trump base is pissed off at the party for not being more aggressive in challenging the election results. Um, they may actually end up losing the Senate majority, which is like one of the funniest things. That would be great. Uh, yeah. So, uh, Dan, if you could show the, the clip of these dudes in Georgia talking about um, why they're why they may not vote in the upcoming runoffs. Did you vote, sir, in the in the presidential election here in Georgia? I did. Who did you vote for, if you don't mind me asking? Greatest president we've ever had, Donald J. Trump. And he lost. He didn't lose. He's going to win. Are you kidding me? He ain't going to lose. Do you plan on um, voting in the Senate runoffs next month? I do plan on voting in the Senate runoff. For a Republican, I take it? I don't know at this point. So you might not vote Republican in January? I don't vote for a party, okay? As far as I'm concerned, the Democrats and Republicans can all go to hell. You, a Georgia voter, a, a conservative, a Trump supporter, a Republican, saying they might not vote... I would be freaking out. I would say, we're, oh my God, are we going to lose this to well, the that's Democrats? That's the point. That's the point. Those two Republican senators need to get their asses out of their office and start thumping on the streets and demanding a real recount, 
Not a fake recount. How can we contribute to this so they're really angry and they sit sit? No, that, that's the whole beauty of it. We don't I have know. to do anything. We, right. I just, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm afraid that, that we, someone's going to intervene and, and convince them to, to th- th- vote. Th- this is a spectator sport. It's, it's already, there's the, 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 it's already settled, the dynamics right, okay, here. Right. So, so there's nothing that, that, could, that could possibly happen to, to interrupt the beauty of this. So either the, the Republicans make more of a spectacle of themselves by deciding to back this, this failed coup attempt. Right. They're not really going to do. Let's just, yeah. let's just be clear about that. That's not going to happen. Okay. But, let, but let's just say they even pretended to do that a little right. bit more. Um, I, you know, that's going to, that's going to lo- 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 lose, lose them votes probably down the line, you know, elsewhere, or they're, they're going to, you know, make the long play move, which is to, you know, do the right thing and encourage Trump to, to um, step, step down, step down. And then they're going to lose Georgia. Like we could do a mashup of Trump saying it was rigged, saying he lost, and then just show the Georgian senators, Republicans being silent. Uh-huh. Right. I just want, yes. you know what I mean? We got to call out the outrage. Yeah. I, 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 but you think it's, it's, you think as long as we let these people just say uh, this, I, I, gonna... I'm, I'm very Star Trek prime directive about this stuff. Like I don't want to get involved in, right. in with, with, with the alien civilization. So, but you know, the, I guess if I, if I cared about the Democrats more, I would, I would probably find this even more amusing, but right. it, it is, it is really funny. Like the Republican party has done, so much to destroy itself over the last four or five election cycles that um, stuff like this is just sort of infinitely amusing to me. But I like Warnock a lot. I got to say. Yeah. He, he had a great line with Kelly Loeffler. He's like, you lied on me and you lied on Jesus. But look, you can't that that you can't excuse. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't get better. And then she's like, I'm not going to be lectured about Christianity by a pastor who is literally pastoring from the same pulpit as Martin Luther King. Not a good line. Mm, I don't think. I think no, it's a, yeah. It's a bit um, clumsy to, to go that route. What was her, what was her physical attitude when she said I wasn't going to be lectured? Did she like, did she do anything with her head or. Wait, that's so pro Matt, don't you know what her physical thing is all the time? She what? doesn't move. She's she like, move? I'm not going to be lectured. <laughs> this radical liberal. I'm not going to be lectured by a man who uses Christianity to support abortion. My radical fused vertebrae, or oh, what if it's an ableist attack? I want her yeah. supporters to challenge me. I challenge you guys to call me an ableist for my attacks on Kelly and her her fused spinal cord. Yeah, actually, no, you can't because wow, I've never used this not to weaponize anything, but I had you know what I had, Matt. When I was you, 11? You, yeah, you had... Uh, final, I had scoliosis. You I had, had spinal surgery, fusion. Spinal fusion. Yep. So come at me. Yeah, so you Kelly have carte Loeffler blanche. Fam. I have yeah. carte blanche, yeah. That's actually, that's an underrated, uh, you know, sort of aspect of the show is that we do get to pick on people who have had spinal fusion right. issues. Because not of, anything, more, not, now spinal bifida, totally off limits. Spinal right. fusion, okay. Fusion, yeah. You have anything that you want people to, like that you have licensed to... Uh, I mean, I've had lung surgery, but I don't think that really counts. So yeah. lung surgery counts, of course. Yeah. Okay. In fact, we should find every person we don't like who has had lung surgery and tease pick on them, them? Merc- yeah, mercilessly. Mm. That's a good. That'll really win people to our side. That's yeah. That's that's the secret weapon. So how dare uh, you? Wa- how dare you? Unilung. 
<laughs> one lung <laughs> instead of aqua lung mono lung yeah 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 excellent, excellent. so i don't know anyway it, it's just the, the whole thing is funny to me because the 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 Re republicans ever since trump came along they just have not figured out a strategy for uh for how to proceed like there, there are really only two ways to go one is to jump whole hog in with the trump experience and just just ride that wave yeah uh, and the other is is to do what they've been doing which is to to you know try to try to retain the 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 infrastructure of the former party and their like the surface respectability and all that while having trump voters and right that's that just doesn't work it's hard yeah. math, right? Yeah. It's funny to see that backing up on them. Okay, so what do we got for... Uh... So isn't that terrible? Uh, Dan, could we click on the link? And this is a tweet from Mom for Progress, Jenna Stimulus Now, but her handle is Mom for Progress. I'm very grateful to Mom for, Mom for Progress who, uh, who suggested this, but she suggested this as an isn't that weird. Now, maybe it should be an isn't that weird, but I thought that I could use it as an isn't that terrible. Um, and she wrote, this is really crazy and gross. Uh, and isn't that weird candidate for you? But I'm going to say, isn't that terrible? So um, Child Montgomery tweets, Simothea exigua. It enters through a fish's gills, eats the tongue, and then replaces it. This delight sucks out the blood of the fish's tongue and then replaces the withered tongue with itself. Now, every time the fish eats, it takes away a portion of the food for itself. Now, Matt, how would you, how would you describe this image? It, it looks like um, a miniature so version disgusting. of the alien. Yeah, yeah. So, the, so in this photo, you see it's like a fish, right? A fish's open mouth. It's a, it's a it's a mouth within a mouth, basically. It's yeah, and inside this fish's mouth is, it's almost cute. It would be cute if it hadn't just eaten its tongue, its host's own tongue. Um, it's almost cute. What would you describe that thing in it as? It, it it looks like a, a a cross between a crab and a mite. Yeah, it's a cra it's a mighty crab. Yeah, and it and it's got a face. And actually, eyes. And eyes, yeah. yeah. And it look, and it, it looks a little bit like a golden retriever, a little bit. Oh my god, it's Bailey. Yeah, it's Bailey. <laughs> it's, it's got big it's got a little Bailey. bit of a, if if you could imagine like an arachnid version of Bailey. Yeah, that's that's what that, you have. That's that's basically what. But this it's is. mini struck mini structural Bailey. I mean, it does change the structure of the fish's mouth, so it's actually more transformative than uh, Bailey ever was. But how can anybody believe in God when something like this exists? I thought, you know, you know what, Matt, I swear we're really rubbing off on each other because I thought you were going to say how awesome this was, but no, it's awful. That's great. Look, it, that, that's a fantastic strategy. Eat something's tongue, replace it, and then take some of the food, but actually still function as a tongue. That's like awesome. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's kind of moving. I feel like. Okay, I feel like conservatives would use this as a metaphor for a parasite and be anti-parasite, but I want to suggest that this is a, a beautiful symbiotic socialism in action. I mean, it's probably the worst, literally the worst propaganda for socialism I've ever seen is a disgusting creature eating the tongue of another one, but it is kind of a, an interesting model. It's and I want to say this to threaten rich people. If you don't share your wealth, there may or may not be creature that lives in there you may end up having a non-college educated person eating inside your mouth yeah a very little one a, a yemeni one. actually it'll be a yemeni <laughs> it'll, <tot. laughs> 
Well, yeah. that is that is that is terrible. That is disgusting. All right, isn't that weird, Dan? Uh, can we look at the um, uh, coronavirus Romania shoe? Okay, good headline. It's solid. Can you Would read you it that? for yeah. people? Yeah. R- Romanian cobbler makes size 75 winter boots to stamp out COVID-19. Now, I, I'm pretty sure they mean the European shoe size there. I want to give him a shout out for the for the um, the pun. Stamp yeah. it out. Stamp. Oh, yeah. No, that's fantastic. All right. So let's just read the lead. Well, how do I pronounce that? Kluge. Kluge, Romania. Yeah. Uh, a Romanian cobbler who made giant shoes to help keep people apart during the first wave of COVID-19 has come up with a new line of huge winter boots to stamp out the second onslaught of the disease. Grigori Loop said the shoes he launched in May in a European size 75 had sold across the world and helped keep his store afloat in the Transylvanian city of Cluge. Uh, he started making them when he noticed people were standing too close together and ignoring social distancing rules. Two people facing each other in his in his elongated footwear would be forced to stand just under two meters apart. How could that be possibly true? In, in order for that to be true, each shoe would have to be a meter, like almost a meter long. I guess it would work, especially if you're standing toe to toe. That gives right. you a lot of distance. But I think that that probably isn't that sustainable a walking model. You'd have to do it like one person going backwards. No, you, one you, forward. you could be side by side. side. You, you could be on top of each other. Wait, but side by side, you have to have amazing turnout, which I have. I, I think this is um, it's it's a cute story, but the it's flawed. Like if Why? you really want to do this, oh yeah, I think the you you would have to make the shoes circular, right? And they would have to and I, it would, it was, they would essentially have to be stilts. I got really excited about this story because I thought they were seventy five American size, but it's still uh-huh. good. It's still a good. Uh, I mean, you can see if you're if you're watching, you see it. It's it's not normal human shoe size no it's i mean I'm, and i'm very in favor of of big shoes i actually owned a pair of clown shoes once why okay i did a story where where i used to get different jobs uh for stories and i worked in a clown theater so they gave me a pair of shoes how was that i was a pretty bad clown i have to say like i was do you have I any was, photos of this uh it's in it's in my exile book there's there is a photo but i was more i was more scary than funny i I think the kids did definitely did not find me um you know like fun to hang around with so So what you should have done is worked in one of those haunted houses that like exactly uh, like evangelicals create where you're like aids or what else are the punishments for being um oh right yes yeah yeah exactly Uh, or or like the you know a teen father or something like that exactly yeah yeah. uh All right, so that that was that was slightly weird. What, what else do we have? Do we? Uh, there there was a little bit of a something that you wanted to talk about this week, wasn't there? So yes. So I wanted to. This could go under. Dem- isn't that terrible? Or isn't MSNBC terrible? It's a short video, and this is with Stephanie Rule. Now, some of you may remember Stephanie Rule um, for getting really triggered by um, Biden's obviously dishonest motto slogan of uh, this race being between Scranton and Park Avenue. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Yep. She's like, I don't live on Park Avenue, but I live pretty close. And how did she get there? She worked her butt off. So this is Stephanie Rule on MSNBC with Bernie Sanders. And shout out to Case Study QB for this. You should follow him on Twitter. Independent Senator Bernie Sanders from the state of Vermont. He is leading a group of progressive Democratic senators demanding $1,200 stimulus checks be included in the next relief bill. Um, Senator, we've heard your impassioned argument Help us understand how many other senators have you convinced to support these stimulus checks? Any Republicans on board? 
Yes, I think there is one, but uh, Senator uh, Holly uh, indicates that he is support part of of a twelve hundred dollar uh, per person uh, direct uh, payment and six hundred dollars or five hundred dollars for children. Uh, I think the Democratic caucus is ready to go forward on that. Yesterday, I sent out a letter uh, with five other senators, and I think we can have virtually all of the United States uh, Democratic senators on board. The question now is whether or not Mitch McConnell is going to turn his back, as your report just indicated, on the incredible suffering that the American people, the working people, are now experiencing. Unemployment high. We have a record level of hunger in America. Millions of people are facing evictions. This is an emergency. Congress has got to respond aggressively to help working families. You know, Stephanie, I always get a kick. Here in Washington, when we go to war, there's endless amounts of money. Tax breaks for billionaires, endless amounts of money. Corporate welfare, endless amounts of money. When children are going hungry in America today, suddenly we don't have enough money. That's crap. That's wrong. And if we have got to stay here throughout Christmas, which is the last thing in the world that I would want to do, we are going to stay here because we are going to make sure that struggling working families in this country get the help they desperately need. Senator, I'm not agreeing with you fundamentally, but I want to talk to you practically. You've been the lead sponsor of 422 bills during your 30 years in Congress, but only seven of them have become law. (laughs) Given that record and how dire things are, as you just laid out, do you need to find another lane or take a different approach here? I don't think that's the issue, Stephanie. I mean, you can ask me how many other senators have passed significant legislation in recent years i hope we were recording matt's response to that uh look at matt he's for for listeners only he's laughing you can kind of hear it what are your thoughts on that Matt? oh man that is really funny that is that that is that that's like a that's a dump truck full of petty right there you know yes i mean for first of all oh and by the way sorry for people just listening she says that that he's only that he's what sponsored 400 bills, I think, and only seven of them pass. They have a graphic of it. If you're just listening, it, it's it just unbelievable. It's like, oh, yeah, 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 Bernie, whatever. I, I get this whole thing about people being hungry, but uh, don't you suck? Yeah. <laughs> like that's, that's and here's the graphic the to prove it. Here's the graphic to prove it. <laughs> also, you see how she thinks it's a gotcha when she asks him who, which Republican? Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah. Also, do you notice she makes a mistake and she says, I don't fundamentally agree with you, but. Uh, yeah, she, she meant that I don't disagree with you. Right. Yeah. That's, or, that, I hope. I mean, do, do you think what other graphics do you think they have waiting I, like in the in the wings for Bernie? Well, first of all, I think the, 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 the story, the new story that's coming is Bernie Sanders owns three masks. That's good. Wait, mask. Oh, oh, masks like that. I was like still stuck in clown mode. Right, right, right. Three masks. Uh, yes, that's really good. And one that's of them's really on a good. lake, right? Yeah, and one of them is on a lake. <laughs> they should make fake Bernie masks and pretend that they're real and just be like, I, I have a, I have a third house, you bastard, schmuck. I got a three houses, you schmuck, and put that on a on a mask and pretend he's selling them. Yeah. The, in, all, the, in all in all seriousness, no, no, like the Democrats are so petty about this stuff, and and. Sanders, and I know this because I did a story about this, and I ended up in the this whole um, controversy that 
uh, that involved the New York Times as well because they did a report about his record. Yeah. And uh, Sanders for ages, you know, really understood that he was probably not going to get a lot of bills passed, among other things, because he was an independent. Uh, and, and because the kinds of things that he was interested in probably weren't going to get past either his own caucus in the Democrats or, or the Republicans. So he worked a lot on passing amendments. So, yes. so his, his specialty was, was getting bipartisan support because this is an, a thing that people probably understand less, you know, outside of Washington, but there are a lot of people who want to, who want to vote for certain things because they're right and correct, but they can't because politically there's, there's a cost that would, that would come sure. with it. So you know, there there are a lot of people who don't want to vote down PBS or whatever it is, or don't or don't want to add another hundred billion dollars to the to the defense budget. But if they actually do that, there's there's going to be an issue. But people don't pay as much attention to amendments. You know, and so so if a yes, if you have an appropriations bill like an omnibus appropriations bill, and buried in it somewhere is a provision, you know, that pays for, um, you know, rural medical, uh, like r rural health care centers, right? Uh, people are, are less likely to notice something like that. So so people will vote for it. Like, the, in other words, the, the you, you can get people from, from across the aisle to vote right. for things that are that are amendments, as opposed to the whole bill. And right. and he and nobody passed more roll call amendments than, than Bernie did over like a very long time. And it, it, is, it is true that it's difficult to get a bill passed. He doesn't have an awesome record on that, but he passes an awful lot of stuff. I, I watched it happen. So, yeah, th that I, that criticism is so petty. It's and 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 to bring it up in that spot is just crazy. I mean, is it petty? Okay, I was actually talking about this with a friend. Is it that they just hate him so much and he makes their skin crawl, as Mimi Roca said? Is it that they're actually opposed to him making this radical demand that people get more than six hundred dollars a month, which is insane? Like, which, which do you think it is? Is it a combination? I mean, we know that she's upset about uh, Biden's totally empty, meaningless uh, cliche about Park Avenue versus versus uh, Scranton. Like, what the hell is he going to do for people in Scranton versus Park Avenue? Nothing. He's just saying that. So, yeah, so what do you think her motive is? Or, or like, the motive of, of MSNBC in general with that? Well, I think that with this issue, the pandemic relief, the Democrats all along have been motivated by two things. Number one... Um, is trying to make sure that the Republicans don't get any credit, or, any 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 yeah. kind of political bounce from it. So that's that's probably why we, they were slow and you know th throughout the election year. But from now uh, going forward, the, the the real issue is bigger because they 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 want to avoid the precedent of the government just giving people money. I mean, I, I think that's something that matters a lot to a lot of their most important donors. Uh, yeah. And we and we saw this with the with the financial crisis um, response when remember there there you know even with the TARP that was an eight hundred billion dollar program and then there was a whole galaxy of Fed programs that equaled you know somewhere between five and twenty trillion dollars depending on who you asked there was only a very tiny slice of that that actually went to people who foreclosed in their houses and and. and that was because people in both parties were very insistent that they not set the precedent right. of sort of helping people willy nilly, right? 
And, and that's also why every social program that involves any kind of aid has to be means tested to right. death and everything like so that. Disgusting. So, you know, th- th- this is a, um, this is a big deal for both parties to, right. to, uh, to avoid, you know, f- to find their way through this thing without having to, to give that kind of a, uh, a program, you know? Yeah. I, that's what, I mean, I think what stands out about it is it seems really, really petty, but it's actually much more profound. I mean, it's like, absolutely tacky and just like inappropriate and and it so it's like petty what does petty mean literally like small is that the origin of it i guess yeah it's like you know right exactly it's, it's yeah. the french word for you know comes out of the word petit right so it's just small yeah so they i mean it's small but it's also large right like it is an actual very big deal ideological difference but it just is so gross the way it's presented. So it comes across as petty. Well, I, they've already done a, a good job of kneecapping Bernie as a as a right as a uh, viable threat to take over the party, and so, so that's done. Seen, right. So this is a dick move, a petty dick move. No, but I think there's also there's an important moment here where they can't allow him to suddenly start being the, you know, they can't allow him to be the voice crying in the wilderness and, you know, trying to be the, the, the conscience of the Democrats and giving them a hard time about stuff all the time that, that like that, that's got to be a non-starter. They can't have that happening from the beginning of the Biden administration. So, you know, right. They need to smear, they need to undermine any type of any attempt to actually move Biden to, to the left or actually just towards helping people. They can't right. let this precedent happen. So they have to. I mean, it's just I mean, it's so gross. It's so gross, especially when you think about it in terms of how much money is coming out of the Fed right now to prop up the, the financial markets. Um, you know, they, they, they basically said we 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 do not care how much money it costs. Uh, you know, you know, the, the, the Fed chair says things like we're not going to run out of ammunition, which basically means we will spend as much as it as it takes. So that's that's what it looks like over on that side. But on this side, they're haggling over relatively small amounts of money. Um, the other thing is that, like, this is people we've, we've talked about this before, the pseudo technocratic argument. Right. Like they're pretending this is a pragmatism thing. And they're also people love pretending that the only reason you should fight for something is if it's definitely going to get passed, as if major legislation in the past hasn't failed before it got passed, or as if you don't build the case or shift, sorry, trigger warning, the Overton window when you demand things. So like, whether or not, like, God forbid, you're actually making the case that this is not enough money and it doesn't get passed, right? It's not built into the stimulus package. Like, what, 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 good, like, that's better than not making the case. But they really right. don't want it to be made. Right. Also, remember, there's a, there's a political benefit in forcing people to take a position on things, too. Yeah, of right? course. So, yes. So that that's how that's part of what you that's that's part of how you build it for passage, you know, down the road is you right. make sure that, you know, if, if people, people vote against price. it, maybe, maybe their constituents don't like that. Yeah. And then you get to um, point to that and say this person voted against this. And then that becomes a toxic position. And then you get the Democrats can then say this party is voting against this. And then, yeah. The, and so this forth. is this has been central to how this new version of the, the it's not even new anymore, the, the sort of Clintonian version of the Democratic Party, how they've understood uh, legislating since the very beginning. They've, they've always talked about like how transactional politics yeah. over purity politics so you have to focus on what what transaction is possible at the moment right. 
and they, you know, and that's even in a situation like this where you can make the case for any amount of money, given the emergency that we're in, they won't do it. Yeah. So that, that that is a funny clip, but it's you're right. It's, just, it's a more serious issue. No, that, so. I mean it is. La- you got to laugh instead of cry. Yeah. I wasn't. I wasn't pushing back on like you're not taking it seriously enough. I was just like, yeah, it's disgusting. Craziness. So I well, got a raise at MSNBC. Yeah. Uh, all right. We're gonna ha- we're gonna talk to our uh, our guest. Yes. Whose so name great. is also Matt. Yeah. And Matt um and he uh, is one of the one of the hosts of Chapo Trap House. And, and uh, his own vlog, Kush vlog. Kush vlog. Smart guy. Like one of the things about very him. Very smart. And very every time funny, I, yeah. I I read I read him on Twitter, I think, wow, his his brain is more. Um, fertile than mine is like he, he, mean, yeah. he comes up with a lot of stuff that's just like super interesting yeah uh, he really is a, one of the voices of our generation i mean I'm, I'm not even being sarcastic he really is like his takes are are ama- are always really good absolutely so yeah. we're going to talk to him now and uh it should be a good conversation yeah it'll be great so excited to have on useful idiots none other than Matt Chrisman, host of uh, one of the hosts of Chapo Trap House and also of his own Kush Vlog, which is a great YouTube show. Welcome. Thank you. What's our record on, on Chapo people at this point? Only two. This makes two, right? Yeah, this makes two. Yeah. Okay. Sounds like a sitcom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or I right. could, this could be between two mats also. Right. Like between, between two us. ferns. Yeah. I like that. Mats. Yeah. I yeah, like we that. Should have, we should have swapping out mats. Actually, it is. It's kind of a like a reverse threes company kind of a situation. Yeah. yeah. Hold like on. That. Let me let me just trip over my couch and then we're, we're perfect. <laughs> we're good to go. Yeah. Matt, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I wanted to ask you about this recent uh, vlog you did where you spoke about the like the a major cultural divide between Republicans and Democrats in college and non college, and then the the uh, motto of don't be a P-U-S-S-Y and the motto of the don't be a and A-S-S-H-O-L-E. I don't know why I'm spelling them out. Maybe because it'll like, so we don't get in trouble with YouTube. Anyway, can you talk about those two mantras and what they yeah. mean? Well, uh, the, the first, first thing is that it, the, 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 it's not really about whether you went to college or not. There's a lot of Republicans and basically everybody at the top of the Republican heap went right, to college. Of course, yeah. It's that they, they, it's about a package of values that you, you subscribe to, if you went to college to some percentage point uh, of agreement, you, you, get, you get assimilated into an idea of uh, 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 this, is, this is the world, this is how you make it in the world, this is what the good is, and everyone, Republican or Democrat, comes out of the college experience basically in agreement in, in large groups, you know, at, at the demographic level that you know, the, the world is messed up, uh, but it can't really be changed in any fundamental way. All you can do is seek to succeed for yourself, uh, for your family, and forever a larger group that you have some sort of emotional affinity with. And that is where the, the values kind of break down. Republicans sort of stop at, yeah, okay, we're gonna, I'm going to succeed any way I can. And and, uh, and any distribution of resources that comes out of everyone competing together and using their various skills to try to get ahead, whatever, whatever uh, distribution comes out of that is essentially uh, fair because it is a reward, it's the reward or punishment based on uh, your uh, ability to um, 
to thrive, which is which is up, which is your virtue, basically. Uh, and then the 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 Democrat liberal view, which is uh, which which comes with a like a more intense acculturation around specific like college based conceptions, uh, says uh, yes, succeed and by your own virtue, but there are other roadblocks to success that mean that a pure uh, just uh, distribution of resources depending on on ability within the market is unfair because of the the roadblocks that certain people have based on their demographics and that we should order society in a way to uh, to correct for those uh, but the thing that's that that they share is is a bedrock assumption that capitalism is inviolable uh, and that and that uh, virtue or and that like virtue comes from success comes from thriving in in the marketplace and 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 you the reason they went to people go to college is to find out how to go about doing that uh but now we're getting a situation where this the 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 democratic version the more fully articulated version of that has is now a culturally hegemonic force that people encounter not just if they go to college but if they don't go to college through popular culture, which is universally created by and for people who did. Uh, and as the conditions in this country deteriorate, and as, uh, as the system proves incapable of uh, addressing it, and at, most importantly, as politics and culture come closer together and in fact become inextricable, and politics becomes culture and vice versa, uh, people are going to find themselves who otherwise as part of their not having gone to college experience, kind of checking out on politics in general, making a frankly rational decision to just kind of ignore that stuff because it doesn't actually affect their lives, which correct, it doesn't really, uh, are going to enter into the political uh, uh, arena and they are not are going to be confronted with the, these two visions of politics, which boil down to your virtue is dependent upon your acculturation towards a, 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 a collection of um, manners and etiquette, which are presented as morality, but in practice are simply a ruling class, uh, uh, the habits of, of a civilized ruling class. And if you're not invested in those tropes, if you haven't gone through the conditioning and come out accepting it, you over time, I think, are going to find more and more people who didn't go to college, even if you know the non-college team, the, the Republicans, are as committed to their immiseration as the Democrats are, finding a cultural affinity for a uh, a project that rejects manners because there is no benefit to be had if you didn't go to college from actually uh, paying attention to those manners because you, by virtue of the fact that you don't have the training like the specific uh, 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 training and how to move through, you know, the, the, the knowledge economy in a way to, to gain uh, success in it, it, it holds no benefit to you. Whereas the benefit of the non-college uh, uh, don't be a, a P word uh, Republican party at least offers a, 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 re a resent filled, a resentment filled pleasure in transgression. It, it, it allows like a political id to be cultivated as opposed to the Democrats, which insist upon this superego repression at all points. But that's based on the assumption that doing that gets you something. And more and more people realize it doesn't actually get them anything. That's really interesting because this is something that uh, 
Greenwald says a lot, which is that, uh, especially with Democrats, everything is about culture. Like it, issues are completely secondary. So they they have a cultural affinity for people like Bill Kristol, um, you know, and Max Boot and Jennifer and those, Rubin, even. Gem, Jennifer Rubin, because they're the same kind of people as yeah. you know Nancy Pelosi. Uh, whereas they are less likely to. Um, you know, to listen to somebody who's poor, but, uh, you know, superficially has, uh, you know, more left-leaning politics than those, those, those people. Do you, do you think that's the case or, or. Uh, I mean, I, a... honestly, I think, I think the, the main thing that I, I want, I try to stress is that this is a symmetrical process. Like everything that a lot of people who are horrified by the, 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 the stagnification and, and like this, this Philistinism and this like cultural, shibboleth mongering on, on uh, among liberals and the left broadly it's the exact same thing on the right it's just you're seeing it from the outside you're you're watching it from the outside and assuming oh they're not like that over there they're, they're not they're not as superficial and they're not as fixated on on maintaining their status hierarchies and they're not as petty no they're exactly as petty because politics is uh for anybody who is participating in it at the level of the discourse like politically, either professionally or because they're seeking a professional uh, entree, or even they just want some personal clout to make their day more, uh, you know, satisfying than it otherwise would be, uh, that those entrepreneurial incentives are universal. And, and that because politics is fully detached from any economic uh, questions, uh, there can be no uh, pressure from like reality to change those relationships. I mean, the, 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 we're, we're seeing right now with, with the response to COVID where, where both parties are in agreement that we would rather, we are going to wait for a vaccine and hope that that solves uh, the demand question that we have in the economy right now, rather than just give people money and set the precedent that you can just give people money. And that is a bipartisan consensus. Neither party has any interest in breaking that. There is nothing in the grassroots or among the political commentariat on either side that can change that either. And as such, all that's left is for everybody to make, to, uh, make it hay while the sun shines for themselves, however they conceive that to be, whatever it means, whatever it means to get ahead, to get heard, to get people to pay attention to you, to be validated by others. That's the only game because the question that politics is supposed to answer, how to make lives better for people, is off the table. So what you're saying, uh, what's inter one of the things interesting about it is that that's kind of a taboo subject in, in mainstream media, right? This idea of a divide between college-educated and non-college-educated people, it's been resisted in like the punditry world to, to even suggest that there's that kind of a divide going on in America. Like, why do you think that is? Uh, there's a couple of reasons. One of the big ones, honestly, is just, uh, and this is another just universal phenomenon that is very difficult to, to, uh, to correct for, which is that people have an inherent immoral investment in these terms. And so when you say something like, you know, the language of a collegiate liberalism or leftism is in some way untranslatable to someone who hasn't had that specific cultural experience. Uh, that comes with 
the assumption from a person who hears that, who went to college, that you're a bad person because you did go to college. You are a reactionary because you went to college. You're, you should be lined up and shot because of that, because that is how, because that's how we're, we divide people by into the good people and the bad people. Like that's the job of politics is to create a basket full of deplorables and a basket full of virtuous people and make sure that you are on top of the basket of good people. And that's once I said, the Republicans do the exact same thing. Reactionaries do the exact same thing. And, and as such, when you say like there, there's a there's a disconnect here that has to be uh, in some way addressed, because if you don't address it, you will never be able to cross over to make politics real again. Uh, there is a assumed judgment. And the problem and it's compounded by the fact that a lot of people who make that point make it a moral point and try to emphasize actually you are a bad person because you went to college you are a latte sipper or whatever and then people have a natural response and try to resist that and so that's a big part of it is that there's this moral uh wash that's over all of the terminology and all the questions of politics that we're trying to resolve that makes it much much harder to get at real questions of you know how this stuff functions because everyone is defending their own personal virtue um and then there's the other fact that if it is true, it means that a lot of the stuff that's being said and a lot of the work that's being done is a waste of time. And nobody wants to admit that. What's interesting is that, you know, people who, who listen to you are so used to uh, people with your politics, my politics, framing things as left versus liberal. So I was, I was kind of surprised and intrigued by the part of this uh, show, this vlog episode, uh, where you talk about how, like, you are largely or writ large you are in the democrat camp and leftists are in the democrat camp can you talk about that what what defines that and how it kind of uh the the relationship between within that that left camp i guess the left liberal divide well left and liberal share uh the leftists and liberals share cultural assumptions about the value of cosmopolitanism and the, the need for like uh 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 for things like racial and, and gender oppression to be to be addressed. And I, I don't think that that's that 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 the fact that liberals believe that invalidates those claims and invalidates course, that right. politics. But that's hard for people to process because, you know, the, the, like like the, the left liberal d divide is just another recreation of the same question of sorting that goes on between liberals and the, the right, the left and the right more broadly. Like you, you've, you've, once you've kicked all the, once you've decided who the bad Republicans are and who the bad conservatives are, and, and you're inside the tent trying to talk, once again, now you have to divide the bad liberals from the good leftists or vice versa. And that requires you to, to create, like uh, to insist upon the existence of like these, the, these incommensurate, political projects, but they aren't fully incommensurate. There are shared values there uh, that need to be, uh, I think in some way, uh, you know, accepted. The, 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 the thing that a lot of even leftists can't really uh, uh, accept though, is that the presiding models for addressing those issues are insufficient and, can't, and actually can't work and in many cases are counterproductive. And that, is scary because it leads some people to the conclusion, well, then let's just throw that stuff away completely. Let's just go over to the right and get those guys on board with some sort of economic populism. But the Republican Party is as captured as the Democrats are by capital. 
there is as little grassroots influence on Republican policymaking as there is on the Democrats, which means you're not going to get anything by saying, hey, we're going to sacrifice all that, uh, all that multicultural stuff for some heron folk democracy. That's going to get you a, a job as a court jester for Tucker Carlson or something, because you don't have any more power in that structure than you do on the dem and then you do within the democratic structure and all of and and for me and this is what i think makes people anxious the most when i try to emphasize this stuff is that the implication for me is that if there is going to be a actual effective left in this country it is not going to be an outgrowth of any any existing uh, uh political project it is going to have to come uh, from the actual experience of actual working people in this country, whether they went to college or not, not saying that if you went to college, sit down, you can't do anything. It is that if anyone's going to do anything, it's not going to be at the level of rhetoric. It's not going to be the level of political organizing or party politics within the Democratic Party or the Republican Party it is going to be workplace organization of people who bring maybe some of the stuff they've learned from uh, in encountering politics in school or, or online or with friends uh, in conversations to their lives, but applying it to specific questions, specific workplace questions that will then acculturate and combine into a movement. Or it won't, but if there's going to be hope, that's it. And that is scary because it means that a lot of the stuff that people have deeply invested emotionally in and professionally in because they think they're part of a project that has some sort of horizon of human uh, liberation within it is essentially a sterile uh, uh, spectacle does that i mean does that include the sanders movement i mean I, again the, the the conceit of the bernie sanders uh, runs in 2016 and 2020 was kind of the opposite of what you're saying, right? Like, in, in other words, we we actually think that uh, within the structure that <laughs> that we mostly disagree with on on a lot of issues, we're we're going to be able to affect change uh, in some concrete way. Uh, but it, it turned out to be exactly the opposite. Um, yeah, is that part no, of what you're th that's the thing is that like I and this is this is the problem with uh, and this is a problem that is part and parcel of being a online human. You know, be, be trying to do politics in the era of a receipts is that it's almost impossible for you to revise and, and shape and change your position as facts accumulate because you have a record of saying something else and you have to defend yourself as someone who knows what they're talking about. And if you admit you were wrong in the past, that implies you might be wrong now and no one right. can do that. But I, I think that uh, the Bernie campaign was what was around and it was it was absolutely the only thing, the only game in town and it needed to be supported. And I honestly think even though it was a failure and more broadly, I, I, I think looking back, the premise of it was wrong. The premise that you could like uh, kickstart some sort of political consciousness from the top of the political and media uh, heights is wrong. But the residue of it, I think, might be useful. The residue of it at, at the level of people who, are, who participated in those campaigns, who learned things from those campaigns, who made connections from those campaigns, will be some part of the DNA of anything that comes later. It, but it, So uh, I think a lot of people who are embittered by the failure of Sanders want to blame somebody for it. They want to say someone betrayed us. Some some faction within the party they made the, within the movement they they had the wrong agenda they they were too ID Paul or they were too class reductionist right. 
Neither, went, they didn't it, go hard enough on the media or they went too it, hard on the media. It wouldn't have mattered. Right. It would not have mattered. To get, to beat the party and to beat the media, which Bernie needed to do, he needed to get people who are not paying attention to politics to care and to think that politics could make their life different. And there was no mechanism to do that. They, they might have done better with, uh, with spending some of that money that they had on organizers talking to people you know, in, in, in their hometowns and, and, and people they know instead of on ads, which were basically a complete waste of money. Uh, but even then, you know, the scale of the issue, the scale of the problem, and the, the, how far behind we are culturally and, and socially from having uh, a, a non-professional uh, conception of politics in this country uh, means that they were so far behind the eight ball, it probably was doomed regardless. And that's why I really am not interested in litigating any of the questions of like what the strategy was. I, I, I think the more important question is stepping back, acknowledging the, the broad trends that sort of determined these outcomes and then figure, well, okay, what, is the, what are the implications of those? And for me, the implication is, is that yes, these, these models, the Democratic Party, the, 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 the cultural war that, we're, that, that we engage in instead of having politics, is sterile, is a dead end. And that real politics is gonna have to come the same, the, from the same place it came from uh, in, the, in the, the first Gilded Age, uh, the, the labor movement. Right. I, but I, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to take off my Bernie goggles through which I clearly see the world. Um, but I, I do think um, there was, it's more, I feel like it's more than residue. I mean, I think that he did, and again, I, I think he made mistakes. I think you know, conceding without certain conditions um, was was a bad idea. You know, he is. I'm. I'm more and more. I'm. I'm able to to not see him as a, an infallible saint. I mean, I still come. Wow. It's not an easy. It's not easy. You got to constantly check yourself. I'm always checking my Bernie. Uh, you know, we got a this moment. I know, yeah. seriously. But I do think that you know, at, there are a couple of things that his, that his campaign did. One is like you know, injected certain ideas into the mainstream. It, it showed that these ideas that are so often portrayed by political and media elites as radical are totally mainstream. Um, it also exposed a lot of uh, terrible stuff about the DNC, a lot of terrible stuff about the media. I, I think the outrage, like balancing Donald Trump outrage with Bernie Sanders outrage was a very helpful thing to see. And I think, I mean, again, Oh, I agree. Um, See, yeah. that's the thing. Is I agree completely. Like, yeah. I don't think that this is. I do not think that you need to. Anyone needs to condemn any anyone or any right. decisions that went into this. The the structural impediments are such that vict that any kind of success was always the least likely outcome. And and then you know reality proved. Oh yeah, you know that's usually what the thing that's most likely to happen is the thing that usually happens. Yeah. Uh, and but the goal should be, as you said identifying those positive results, those, those things that did seem to change our understanding of politics, uh, and, then in, and then to move forward with them. That's the important thing. The best ad he ever did was not an ad he paid for, which was that gif of uh, him walking around Wall Street. Oh, and God. U and a UPS guy just like oh, taps God. him on the shoulder. Every time I in. see that. I remember I the know. first time I watched that, I fucking I teared up. Yeah. You talk about residue. I mean, I, I always felt like the Sanders movement kind of grew out of the residue of Occupy a little bit, right? Like there was the, Occupy kind of left something in the ether that was 
there to develop yeah. and turned into the the Sanders movement. But you know, what kind of residue is left after the experience of these last two campaigns? I mean, there's a lot of bitterness, I think, and it reminds me a lot of what was going on in the Republican Party before 2016, where suddenly you started to meet all these people who were they were like nihilistic, right? They just no longer believed that there was going to be any outcome for them that you know from their vote that that was going to be positive. So they you know they they turned to Trump really because just for the yeah. and giggles, basically. Yeah. Like, is, yeah. is that is that going to be a temptation of of people on the other side now because they're going to be they're going to feel like well, what's the point? I, if if they do, I think they'll be more likely to to just drop out of the political process because, like the the uh, like the like a lot of those demo, like I, I was talking about how broadly, if you went to college and you've absorbed like the idea that you should be a political subject, you're either a Democrat or Republican. Broadly, also uh, a lot of those Democrats don't vote, but they don't vote like as a point. <laughs> they don't vote to make a point about voting. And that, I think that they'd be more likely to do that than to pick some, you know, nihilistic uh, uh, Joe candidate just because the, the structure of like the broader left politically doesn't uh, uh, really lend itself to the emergence of a figure like Trump. So they'll be more likely to just tune out. So, where, so what do you see on the horizon that that is, you know, a potential type of organization or movement that, you know, that that could be the beginning of what you're talking about? Uh, I, I try, especially after the election and after spending like four years in this, you know, in Schrodinger's box, trying to know whether I'm dead or not, or the cat is dead. I'm very happy to sort of, did you suck off the cat? I sucked off the cat in the box. <laughs> yes. Uh, or did I? Or, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it depends on whether or not we were observing. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, um, and I, I'm now happy to swear off predictions in general, done predicting stuff. I'll leave that to Virgil. He likes it. I hate it because I never feel confident. And my track record shows I shouldn't feel confident. Uh, <laughs> but uh, in broad strokes, I think that if, if there's going to be anything that's, that's going to emerge to, to, to challenge the coming, uh, the, the, essentially I see the American like political economy as going in these cyclical intensifications of austerity and, and, uh, and, and social liquid liquefaction. Like the, the first big one was the 1970s realignment. And then, uh, then NAFTA, uh, then 2008 was huge. And now COVID a mere, uh, what, eight, uh, six, what is it? Not even the 20, 10 years later is doing it again. But we're now in the middle of another intensification of that process. If anything will emerge to to challenge it and change this trajectory, uh, I don't think it's going it's going to be a third party. And I know that that is something that realistic leftists have been allergic to for a long time, on good reason, because you know our system is designed to adhere to maintain a two party structure. Uh, but uh, I feel like the 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 moment uh, that we have where we have a a politics that is no longer functional, a, 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 that cannot, a politics that cannot be contained by, the, by the, the constitutional order due to a bipartisan refusal to acknowledge the fundamental uh, uh, driver of conflict socially is very similar to the situation we saw in the 1850s over slavery. Uh, and and uh, the Democrats, uh, 
if there's hope, the Democrats are, are going to go the way of the Whigs. Uh, and, 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 and obviously that sounds, you know, unlikely, and it is unlikely, but if we're talking about projecting the future, we're always imagining, you know, uh, uh, we're always having to gather our light around unlikely outcomes. Because if you want to be realistic in your projections, you just say, oh, no, techno-feudal uh, nightmare uh, forever. Uh, an app-based boot on your face for eternity. Like, that's the easy thing to say. Uh, so, you know, put myself out there a little bit. If, if, if it's going to come from anything, it is going to be a movement that emerges outside of our broken cultural conflict and that is essentially immune to it, that cannot be co-opted by these stupid arguments that inherently that, that, that destroy solidarity because it will be emerging from people addressing conditions in their lives, not addressing theoretical political questions that tie to their sense of identity and virtue as people. Do you think that there's value? I mean, yeah, it's, it seems like there's this. This is the first time in my life not to do exactly what you said, which is kind of uh, reflect on my own thoughts about this and theories. But uh, this is the first time in my life where I'm really like, no, there does need to be a a third party that that we get behind if only to kind of threaten or uh, we have to actually get started now but if only to threaten the democrats to actually do anything to uh shift left i mean to get them to do anything you know they have no people on the left they know that we have nowhere to go yeah um, exactly yeah but th there is no there can be no moving the democrats yeah. anywhere yeah. there can be no withholding of, of votes there can be no coordinate if you could coordinate uh, to push the Democrats anywhere, Bernie Sanders would be the nominee, right? Yeah. And and he'd be president. And yeah. and and instead, Biden is 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 going to be president. And they have made the transition period a grand display of their indifference and hostility and domination of the left. And uh, there's nothing within this system that can challenge that. There is no amount of local primary uh, runs that can be supported that could have the cumulative effect of changing the calculus of the people at the top of the Democratic Party. Yeah, there's this Lawrence O'Donnell clip where he's like, I worked on the Hill. We did not care about what the left said because they had nowhere to go. They're gonna go. Yeah. There has to be somewhere to go. And, and the thing is that requires risk and that requires, uh, that requires maybe letting Republicans win an election sometime because you split the vote. And that kind of thing can only happen if the people doing it don't care about that stuff. If they cannot be neutralized and co-opted by the, the, the rhetoric of and the incentive system of the Democratic Party and the media apparatus around it. What, what about just mere self-preservation? Even, even if they don't re have any actual pressure that they have to worry about institutionally, isn't there a moment and at which either the Republican or Democrat or Democrat parties um, have to start thinking, well, we have, we got to start doing something to improve people's lives generally, uh, or else this whole thing is going to fall apart. Do you, is, do you think there's a possibility that some kind of, you know, institutional urge to self-preservation will kick in uh, because if, it's, it's reaching some breaking points in yes. places. Uh I think if if it, it it'll it'll it, I think it might, but it'll take the form of once again bipartisan, barest possible uh, outcome. Look at the negotiation over the COVID relief. What is the minimum that we can do? And they will keep doing that, and we will keep 
even as things get worse, even as social atomization increases, even as you know crime goes up and and, and uh, uh, deaths of despair go up, and as long as people are still contributing economically, are still largely being coerced by the market to do to continue putting in and taking out the inputs and moving the, the capital around uh, from the demand side as they need to, that they will continue to do that. And the one thing they can't do is have one of the two parties decide to try to leverage actual economic uh, uh, demands because that destabilizes the whole structure. And there's and more and the thing is is that it, there's no need to do that because uh, the Republicans have built-in uh, uh, institutional guarantees that assure that they will never really be out of power, and the Democrats don't need to be in power. They can lose every election, and the one then the people who make up the party at its core points will still be where they want to be. And, and they know that any system where they're no longer the, the, the uh, bagman, basically, between capital and the political system is, is one where they are in, a, in some inferior position that they don't want to be in. Yeah, it's what is it, the, iron, the rule of iron? The iron law of institutions, yeah. Yes. Switching gears, I know this is a completely different subject, but I, w I wanted to ask about this. So Biden sucking off his dog. <laughs> no, yeah, well, right. I, I do want to ask about that. You, you, for our listeners, uh, uh, Matt tweeted about uh, Biden sucking off Major, his dog, right? Yeah. Which I think we all agree is what, what happened. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, when, when, when Chapo came on the scene uh, in the last election cycle, there was this extraordinary pushback from legacy media organizations. And I, I think we all remember some of those articles where they were saying things like, oh my God, they're actually making money. And, you know, they, they, would, yeah. they, they would list the amounts like, you know, the, how can we allow this type of thing? Yeah, Patreon, Patreon, Patreon. Right. So in the intervening four years, you know, the model that you, you kind of established has, has created all this new media all over the place. And uh, it's it's had a major effect, I think, on the entire media landscape. How do you see that the how the media looks now versus how it was when you guys first came on the scene? Because in, both in terms of where traditional media is and how much people believe in them and what what's gone on in an alternative media. Well, I, there's certainly a lot more alternative media institutions that came in the in the wake of the 2016 election and and they are creating alternative models for funding you know like the crowdfunding model is now like everyone understands now at this point that if you want to do if you want to do any kind of media political media work uh you kind of have to at some level depend on contributions from listeners or viewers because there is no architecture within the corporate media to allow for anything other than than uh, you know the most vapid identity stuff or just DNC cheerleading, uh, and and so that is it's heartening in the sense that it gives people a potential exposure to alternative points of view. But uh, if the, the real the real problem though the the persisting problem is that is if if the if this pool of people who are who are consuming political media is fixed as it is now within this realm of sort of overeducated younger people that their you know disparate lived experiences and, and inability to direct any of the things they might be exposed to into their daily like working lives uh it, it means that it's it's actual efficacy in the world which is you know what presumably we're doing this for uh is 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 pretty attenuated 
uh, I mean, it, Patreon was around before you guys. Uh, yeah, it was mostly for people drawing nude anime characters. Yeah, yeah. I mean, why didn't you it, do that? Yeah, so I can't draw I, the hands. I can't draw the hands. Yeah, <laughs> that's the one part. Um, but you guys, I mean, you guys blew it up, put it on the map because you made, you know, you did so well on it. Um, I'm just curious, what did, what was the, did you like have a conversation? Do you remember the aha moment? You're like, oh, we should do this. We should set up a Patreon. Uh, it was early, on, very early on in the in thing. I mean, we, we did our first episodes. They were very haphazard. We didn't really edit them. They just got pulled off of our Google Hangout YouTube link and, and they sounded very bad, but they, people immediately started listening to them. And it was like a couple months we both were all aware of Patreon as, as a, as a model. And we thought maybe we could, you know, see, just like see what happens, sort of throw it out there. And I, I was the one who actually set up the Patreon and I was, I was intensely nervous the whole day. And I kind of had to work myself up to doing it because I was just terrified of doing it and then announcing it and then getting nothing. Just like ha going there like three days later and seeing like, you know, $20 or something and, and wanting to jump off of a bridge. Uh, and that didn't happen. Uh, and, but it was completely unpredict un uh, nothing that it was nothing that we had expected to happen. None of us thought that this was going to be like a, a career for us or, or a, or, or like a, a new media model. We, we were just trying to, you know, get like a little extra money, I guess. And just like a little, I guess just a, a tangible reflection of interest because you know those those extra Twitter followers you get you know, that's nice but you can't get a you can't buy a pizza with them right but, but yeah and, and that's why and it's and almost immediately we were accused of being you know a operation of the of the intelligence and that we were we were getting money from uh, you know front companies and it was all a scam and I, I I fully understand the impulse to think that because of how ridiculously fast everything happened and the idea that that you could create a media like imprint that quickly and and that and that profoundly it really was there wasn't a lot of other uh there weren't a lot of other examples of that so i can see a lot why a lot of people had suspicions uh but you also got the katie helper show bump Matt that Taibbi. was huge yes huge, yeah. the, the katie helper bump going to that was really the even more than when we because you started the patreon at the beginning of summer of 2016 and it was doing well you know it was it was not it was like i don't remember but it was it was you know in the in the thousands and then you had us out to new york i and i went went out to new york i was living in cincinnati at the time felix and will were living in new york and we did your show at uh at brooklyn, brooklyn commons. commons yeah and it was when I went there to do the show and the whole room was full that that was the moment where I, even more than the Patreon thing, where I had kind of a, I had to sort of stop and realize, oh, my life is different now. Yeah, Ty, you should give me a 1% or something, probably. We'll work it out I after mean, the show. I'll see you in court, but yes. Yeah, I'll see you in court, yeah. No, but Taibi, just so you know, Matt Taibi, the first time they were all together in person to record was on my one of my live nice. shows. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. So like, when they write the history of Chapo. Yeah, you should get yeah, 100%. You should yeah. get a, a No, I'm fine with 1%. 1%. You don't <laughs> have to give me 100%. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I'm assuming there was a direct correlation between getting criticized in, in legacy media and how much you, uh, how much of a bump you got on, on Patreon. Like in other, in other words, the right. more they dumped on you, the more money you made them. It had, had to be like that, right? That was helpful. Yes. That was a big part of it. 
yeah. and then even then there was the meta criticisms like within the the non like uh uh within the just the media the twitter sphere in general like at, we were uh we were featured in the new yorker right after the election and that ended up being a huge bump less because of the article i think than the people who got insanely pissed at the article <laughs> and, and we just couldn't stop talking about it yeah and, that, and then there was the bend the knee quote what was that what was that in Oh yeah, uh, Jeet here wrote about that in the uh, the New Republic, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got a quote from Will Maniker. Yeah. Will Maniker, yeah, yeah. Um, which was of course translated into some kind of homophobic. I mean, what I, it, it's a fun, we should do this. We should like play a game where we take something that's not actually problematic and see how many like how many. Um, accusations to, we can, yeah. yeah or just how how i could do it really quickly i think but how to problematize it and pretend that it's something problematic and offensive um but also i wanted to know also what you thought um about biden's pick so far which is your favorite of all of them unless well, I, I don't mean, mean to stop the media discussion Matt, as, you as a poster you got to give it up for putting nira in there it, do you think biden is trolling or serious Oh, I, I don't think he's trolling. Like okay. the idea that it was a message to anybody. It, no, like this is a small incestuous circle of of uh, professional um, psychopaths, like looking at each other's uh, business cards, like Patrick Bateman, and and it, and it's all about you know who you know who, Silly who you want to keep inside the pen pen and who you want to keep an eye on, and you know Nira is somebody who knows where the bodies are buried literally and figuratively and you want to keep her happy so it, it totally makes sense although i i do it would be hilarious if she ends up being the sacrificial lamb who doesn't get confirmed right right because of she, her tweets part of me thinks that either she or Rahm Emanuel are sacrificial lambs and distractions because they're both so incredibly odious and over the top and there are so many people who have their terrible political positions and record who aren't like who haven't punched an employee in the chest yeah <laughs> um, that's you know you could have there's some resumes you could have picked from that didn't involve physical um abuse or didn't involve putting a, a decomposing fish on someone's doorstep uh which is of course what Rahm Emanuel did and didn't involve like covering did up did you do the, that oh I yeah that, yeah that story. No, yeah yeah so part of me thinks that is a it is a distraction um but you know, I gotta say, like, and I and we have to reframe this because the whole narrative of like she 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 tweeted things that that upset Republicans, like that's not the issue, obviously. Uh, she's also tried to advocate it. She also advocated for stealing Libya's oil after we overthrew the government there, yes. and uh, using that as like an actual like I, I want maybe this was this is Ruskian, maybe this was inspired by Dean Rusk, but it was an actual model, right? Of like. We need to justify engaging uh, in the world, i.e. like bombing other countries or overthrowing other countries. And if we do it in a way that provides an, a beneficial outcome, then we can get people on board because most Americans don't want us to be doing that. Um, it's essentially, it's essentially uh, she was trying to synthesize Trumpism before it's time. She was, yeah, she yes. was accepting, well, we're going to be everywhere. We have to have our, our, our empire's footprint cannot go, cannot be reduced. And 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 the, the, one of the costs of having an empire uh, that is based on military force is that you underinvest domestically. We have to do what the old, uh, like the French Republic and Napoleon did, which is have the the army feed itself, basically. Right. Right. 
you know, she's short, as she herself mentions frequently. Um, so maybe she has a Napoleonic complex. I'm sure. Tying it all together. Yeah. But uh, yeah. And then we should also give her a shout out for telling basically the Clinton campaign not to uh, push for f 15 an hour, uh, advocating for cutting entitlements and lying about it. And I got to say, one thing that's been driving me crazy is they keep talking about her lived experience. I don't know if you've seen this. But it's definitely a talking point. You have Mimi Hirono talking about it. You have journalists talking about it. You have people tweeting about it. And lived experience can be great, but it can also be the worst thing ever if you are advocating cutting the very programs that you benefited from. Like they talk about she grew up in Section 8 housing, which is, I mean, that's great if she then grew up to advocate for things like Section 8 housing instead of advocate for cutting things like that. Yeah, well, that's the bipartisan consensus I was talking about. I mean, it's not necessarily that she wouldn't say, I'm not cutting it to punish people. I'm not cutting it because they don't deserve it. I'm cutting it because we can't afford it anymore. Right, right. And like, yeah. well, if you, can't, if, if you can't have to deal with that, uh, if, you, if you can't rely on Section 8, then you need to, as a person, your responsibility is to, uh, is to, be, is to do whatever it takes to be successful enough in the market to avoid uh, immiseration. And if you can't, uh, if it's due to race or gender, we'll have specific programs to alleviate that. But if once beyond that, it's up to you. And any failures at that point are personal failures because laundered of all of the uh, you know, moral uh, justifications for liberalism or conservatism broadly is a fundamental belief that, you know, uh, that, the, that the undeserving to some degree or another uh, uh, the poor will always be with us in like the most cynical sense. Like the Republicans say that the poor will always be with us because they're just not able to hack it. There's something inferior about their character or intellect that prevents them uh, from uh, succeeding. The liberals say, uh, well, that's, that's not true for traditionally oppressed poor people, but it basically is true for white poor people. Right. In fact, it is their very racism and their in their social reactionary ism that prevents them from succeeding, uh, and that there's only so much you can do or should do for people who can't help themselves, and that is the undergirding ideology of both parties. Right, which of course also does not even help those com traditionally marginalized communities because it's stigmatizing when you. Well, don't what have it does is it program. makes yeah. it makes the democratic elites feel less bad about being elites. That's all it's meant to do. It's to launder their guilt. It's to make them feel that they deserve their granite countertops and their townhouse because they know deep down they don't deserve it. Yeah. Unlike yeah. unlike the heathen in the McMansion, the Republican voter who thinks that he has his uh, his wealth by God's grace, I know that it's privilege. Right. I'm not giving it up. Yeah, I'm not doing anything about it. Yeah. But I deserve it, and he doesn't. Yeah. That's that's what politics is there to do. Is and and vice versa. The 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 voter. He, he can look superior to, to the, the coastal elite liberal because he believes in God, which he absolutely does not. He, his, his God is, uh, is, is an a, a in-ground pool and, and an a, and a, and a ATV. Like, that's God. But, but that, that, that fake spirituality is enough to, to make him worthy of, of his wealth and others uh, unworthy. I mean, yeah. it's, it's kind of like the political version of the difference between Catholicism and Protestantism, right? Like Catholics feel guilty, Protestants yeah. don't, 
right? Yeah. No, that's absolutely <laughs> it. Yeah. yeah. And like the Republic, like, like American, like evangelical conservatism is like the end state of American Protestantism. Right. Where, where like, well, because uh, we cannot find God's will in our social lives. We cannot find God's will uh, amongst our, our fellow man because we don't know them. We only know each other as, as, as consumers and as, and as employers and employees, as strangers. So God's will can only be discerned by the, the distribution of fortune among stuff. people. Mm-hmm. Who's yeah. got the stuff? Right. Uh, and, and, and the, 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 these, the liberalism is just that guilty conscience, that, that guilty Catholic conscience that gnaws at your uh, acceptance. And that's why uh, there is such, that's why there's so much energy. If, if the Trump, you know, if Trumpism is like def- redefining the Republican party uh, in its cultural values and language, which I think it is doing and is it's in, irreversible, that's appealing because who doesn't want to just have fun? Who doesn't want to just, if the, everything, if the ship's going down, why not grab everything you can and have as much fun in the moment as you can? What good is feeling guilty? Unless yeah. you've instilled in yourself through acculturation, through the college experience and the, then living in the social milieu that comes after that, uh, that there is a real virtue and that there's something to really enjoy. There's something that essentially Democrats get off on not getting off. Right. Yeah. No, they're, they're you like, have to have you have to have that. In, you have to have a special experience where that is in any way satisfying. And, if you, like, and, it, and, it, and it's very difficult to do if you don't have money. Is that like being an edgelord or something? I don't actually yeah. know what that means. It's, it, it, it's, think... it's, the, it's, it's that superego denial. You're denying yourself and in denying yourself, you express your virtue. Right. And therefore, you can enjoy the things that you do enjoy. It, it launders your sensual enjoyments and allows them to be accessible. But if you don't have a lot of money, if you don't have a lot of, uh, of comfort, then you, don't, you have very little need to do that. What you have a need for is to feel anything other than misery. Yeah. And, and all the Democrats are going to be telling you and are telling you and will tell you in the future is no, no, no. You have to feel bad about any pleasure you have in life, whether it's going to Thanksgiving or having a cigarette or having a full uh, sugared soda or going hunting, you have to feel bad about it or not do it and then feel bad about not doing it. And if you have not, if you don't have comfort, if you don't have material comfort and ease and you're not, and you're not haunted by, and you're haunted by precarity or like a real felt precarity, then the appeal of that denial is non-existent. So basically if you're, if you're a well-off, uh, like blue state MSNBC watcher, you just got to go to ritualistic confession. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I bless me father for, I have a granite top table and exactly. I, I, cause I have privilege. Yeah. Read, uh, yeah, read, read, uh, read four pages from between the world and me, uh, <laughs> and watch Rachel Maddow and, you know, and then give some well, money to, right. uh, give some money to De- John Ossoff and it's okay. You can and go, also read go to Mallorca. You can get, go to Mallorca right. and not feel bad about it. Right. And also make sure you get, read a couple pages at least of, um, Robin D'Angelo. Oh, of course. Yeah. Um, that's hardcore though. That's if you really did something bad. Yeah, that's if you really want to do the work. Well, actually I'd say Robert D'Angelo more is if you're aware that you could get fired. <laughs> Like, cause that's like the Robert D'Angelo thing is really how to avoid getting fired. Like that should be the name of the book. Yeah. Like, yeah. How, how to work, how to work in a nervous, uh, uh, you know, uh, professional milieu without uh, ending up in front of human resources. Yeah, that's true. We should and if go. You don't, if you're, if you're one of these liberals who doesn't work in an office and who has like detached themselves from that kind of precarity, then you don't really need Robin D'Angelo. Yeah. You can stick with some Tennessee coats. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, so I'm gonna I'm modifying my suggestion. So go with Tanahasi Coates if you are engaged in one lifestyle uh, employment situation, and then D'Angelo for another one. Thank you, yeah. thank you, Matt. Uh, if you, if you, Matt if you want to hold on to your cubicle, yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. a cubicle retention guide, actually. Uh, do you think you could, in like one minute, convince Taibi to be uh, a socialist or Marxist? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I, I'll I'll just put it this way. We know where everything's headed. We know. It doesn't matter if the Republicans win the election or the Democrats win the election or we beat the Chinese or the Chinese beat us or there's a the Chinese or we have a, a leveraged buyout by the Chinese or whatever. The future holds. It's a neo techno neo techno feudalism uh, until all the resources are gone. The only alternative to that is the boring shit that Marx talked about uh, 150 years ago. Working people organizing at their place of alienation and exploitation, sharing the common experience of alienation and exploitation, applying it to the problem of making their lives, lives of dignity and plenty, and then getting numbers sufficient to confront power. Boom, there you go. Cut yeah. to the internationale. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. That, that sounds great. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll get right on. Get right on. Yeah. Let's all, let's all just do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, well, I mean, the well, problem yeah. with it, though, is that from the practical percentage of people who right now have to do things like, you know, be journalists or be media figures or talk about stuff, well, what does that have to do with the price of butter? And it really doesn't. We are trapped in this discursive bubble. And, and, uh, and like, uh, unless we're going to break out of it, you know, we're going to go Unabomber or we're going to try to, like, go back to the people like the Narodniks. You've got to uh, disinvest emotionally from the idea that you're really doing anything. And then that void, that emotional void that's left where you're not getting, you know, a sense of satisfaction or completion or, or actualization from, from the, the job of being a media figure, you got to put something else there. But that question of what it is, is a personal question. It can't be prescri prescribed by anyone else. Yeah. So uh, will the Biden era be more or less funny uh, and, and interesting from a commentary point of view than the Trump era? Oh, I think Biden's going to be hilarious. You think? Uh, one, I mean, the fact that he broke his foot saying he was playing with the dog and then two days later, like, Which yeah, he I was sucking off, <laughs> sucking off the dog. The fact that he's not even- He was sucking off the dog in doing, the shower. He's not even inaugurated and they're already doing weekend at Bernie stuff to act like he's not a mummy. And then you have, have, and then I think honestly, the thing that'll make it funnier, especially from, from the perspective of Chapo and the thing that we were looking forward to with Hillary is, is that as funny as Trump was, and he was hilarious and still is and always will be the, the humor of like the humor of talking about Trump's uh, funny stuff uh, is undercut by the fact that you have an entire media apparatus just, sweating their balls off trying to make fun of him too to delegitimize de him and talk about how unnormal he is and, all, and be horrified by it whereas that entire apparatus will now be committed to trying to tell you no he's not a dying mummy right right and that will make it his dying mumminess way funnier than trump's right, right. yeah exactly yeah <laughs> and uh right and also it makes our role much more useful well, I'm, I don't know how you I mean, or is. I should say we don't have to worry about I mean, this is a mistaken way of viewing the world. 
but we don't have to worry about sharing those talking points. Yes. Uh, with, no, that's uh, when, that's one of the things that makes it funny is that yeah, you can, exactly. you're liberated. Yeah, exactly. You're liberated from it. Like the, the, the specter that haunted uh, media commentary uh, during Trump was the orange mad bad, the right. orange mad bad thing, you right. know? Because are, are you just at a, at a certain level, you are just contributing to this, this, this flow of, 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 uh, of banal liberal uh, uh, commentary, which is just going to, you're already seeing it completely dry up. And, and it's amazing. Like we, there is now this alternative media space uh, that, and it'll be very interesting to see how it develops because you're not seeing any kind of realization that, Oh, like the reality of austerity and COVID and misery under Biden is going to be different and that it's going to require a different approach to power than your reflexive like, Democrat worshiping. But no one, everyone's fully committed at this point. They have sold their souls. And, and, and beyond that, they're fully bubbled with one another to the point that they're not even aware of how absurd and out of touch they seem. So the ground is going to be very fertile, and I'm looking forward to, uh, to it. If you had to bet on any pundit to, to break ranks and be the first person to pick on, pick on Biden. Oh, man. Jake no one Tapper. on MSNBC. No, <laughs> no. No, one on, no one who has a show, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're, all, they're, all, they're all absolutely in the tank. Uh, I, I don't know. It'll be interesting. It'll be interesting. I, I honestly think they might not, that we might see fewer than you'd assume just because, as I said, like the social pressure – won't exist because, like in everything, this is disconnected. Did what if he keeps breaking bones from sucking off animals and he ends up like, you know, they're, they're rolling him out. A full mummy. He's got calves everywhere and attraction. I mean, they've already maybe. figured out a way to say that it's ableist to make fun of him right. just like fritzing out like a 50s robot. They'll find out a way to say that that is somehow uh, ableist or racist or whatever. Anti Irish. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, exactly. Yeah, black yeah. Irish. He's, yeah. he's he, If he's black Irish, he's going to use that a lot. All right, excellent, Matt. Thank you yeah, so much. Thank you so much. Uh, this is great. Where can everybody find your uh, your, your work? Podcast, Chapo Trap House. Uh, also, Chapo Trap House uh, on Twitch, the channel. That's where I do my streams. Also, they go on YouTube at our Chapo Trap House YouTube page. Uh, that's that's it. And at, at, at Kushbaum. Right. At Kushbaum, yes. Kushbaum on okay. Twitter, yeah. All right. Thanks so much, Matt. Thank you so uh, much. Excellent. Uh, we'll check in again soon. Yes. Right. Bye bye. That was great. That was great. Learned a lot. Had a lot of fun talking with him. He's great. He's funny. He's smart. He's gotten kind of increasingly vulnerable, by the way, over the years, which is nice. Vulnerable? I think. What do you mean? Yeah. He talks about feel like on his vlog, he talks a lot about feelings and despair in a way. I mean, he's still hilarious and ironic, but that's definitely a space that, you know, Chapo didn't. Uh, I mean, they, 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 they do get serious and they get, it's very moving because they're like motivated by a sense of right, you know, they were real moral clarity, moral conviction, but he talks more about like, he's more open about his emotions than hmm. he used to be. Um, we not really explored on this episode, but uh, a little bit, but uh, I also, so yeah, everyone follow him. And um, I want to make sure that people know that the reason we're not giving a full review of Mandalorian is because Matt was so affected by not watching it that we just don't have time on this episode we don't have time to get into the breadth of emotions that i didn't feel yeah so we'll do that next week yeah excellent all right uh thanks for tuning in and listening uh, and or watching uh to useful idiots and we will see you uh soon
I'm Michael Toscano, hoping you'll join me on the First Light Podcast. We get to the heart of the event shaping our world as our correspondents check in and we talk with newsmakers and people who can take us behind the headlines. The First Light Podcast, wherever you get podcasts.